hello everyone. Uh, this is um, data-driven Formula One, and as usual, Patrick Hansen, Gana Pogrebna here. Hello, Gana. Hello, all. Hi. So today we uh, we do what we promised. We promised to, to look at uh, Monza and uh, kind of look at the stats and show you some analysis of. Uh, uh, what was happening in Monza over the years, uh, which uh, team was most successful, which um, driver was most successful in Monza. So that's exactly what we're going to do today. Exactly. It's a premiere. So uh, the first time we are speaking uh, about a racetrack, I think a quite uh, interesting start because uh, Monza, very emotional race, uh, lots of people, especially uh, Ferrari fans, and I'm sure we will discuss it uh, in this hour. Yes. Well, there, there we have it. That's uh, yep. what the Monza track looked like <laughs> pretty much from uh, the beginning to the present time. And um, as you can see, there were a number of uh, different um, changes, and especially with regard to this oval addition to this to the circuit and uh, yeah i mean initially it didn't just look as a, as a boot <laughs> but <laughs> it kind of looked as a shoe a little bit in uh, in 1930s right 1935 to 1937 so there was this kind of um interesting change to the track but uh, we will talk uh, uh, about these changes a little bit as we go along one thing that I was quite surprised about, so when I looked at the data, I thought that actually this was probably the only circuit where they held um, a, a Formula One race every year. So I expected to have 80 years um, uh, of, of racing in this track when I kind of did the uh, um, uh, uh, some uh, numerical exploration, some uh, analysis for today's episode. But uh, it was always coming out as 79. <laughs> and then when I looked it up, it turned out that uh, uh, the Italian Grand Prix in uh, 1980 happened in Imola. And this is why kind of what we will show you will always uh, keep in mind that in 1980, it wasn't Monza. It was a different circuit. But that was exactly. the only year, right? That was the only year where, when uh, there was no race in Monza. Yeah. Exactly. They had to uh, build on the track as they had to restructure it to make it a more uh, safe place for the drivers. And it seems that uh, maybe they overrun the works or, or whatever happened that year. Mm -hmm. um, interesting, if we see uh, these graphics, is that uh, already in the very first version, they had uh, some kind of oval. It was not a closed uh, oval as they did later, but they had an oval as we find in the US. And um, maybe not that surprising because quite in the beginning, uh, motorsports uh, also in Italy was quite inspired uh, by the race uh, by uh, US cars. So uh, due to the legend, uh, what uh, Enzo Ferrari inspired for the 12 cylinder engine was that his father took him uh, to a street race as it was common in Italy and uh, Enzo was fascinated by a Packard with a 12-cylinder engine. So 
quite in the beginning of motorsports, at least in the north of Italy, we had the US cars. So we had the philosophy coming from the US and maybe that explains why already in the very first version we had something like a oval in the US. Um, in, uh, another point uh, which I think it's uh, important, we see the third uh, change 1950 to 1954. We are here after the second world war and it was not only Germany, but also uh, Italy uh, received uh, founding by the US. They have been part of the Marshall Plan. So in the beginning of the 50s, uh, this was a benefit, especially as Italy took um, this money to reinvest, to rebuild the industry in the northern part of the country. So the parts uh, like Milan and uh, Turin, where we have all the uh, automotive industry, and of course, Milan is also the place where we are today in Monza Park. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, you know, it it's uh, kind of also striking how, despite uh, all the changes, I mean, it, 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 it there is amazing consistency across, and uh, indeed, uh, the the whole point is to make it. Uh, I mean, uh, there was, uh, of course, uh, originally the point of making it more competitive. And currently, you can see that it's uh, all about making it safer for driving because it is a very difficult circuit and uh, it is quite, a, uh, you know, quite, quite tricky to drive. And uh, as we will see later, there were quite a few fatalities mm -hmm. uh, on this track and, you know, for a good reason because it is such a complicated track. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, even if uh, more or less it still looks the same, it's uh, fascinating that something um, like a racetrack is really changing uh, over the time. So what we see in the beginning is something which uh, not exists in reality anymore. So, and uh, due to this, uh, it's quite interesting that today we have the technology is uh, digital twins uh, simulation so we can uh, simulate how it would have been for a driver in the 1920 like 1930s or 1950s uh, driving on classic tracks with classic uh, race cars and maybe we will discuss this a little bit more in a separate episode but the good thing is when we speak about a racetrack we have options to show you a little bit the track, uh, not that we uh, have the budget to fly to Milan and uh, make a lap here, but at least uh, we could use uh, the good old uh, PlayStation uh, to show you one uh, lap. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm here, I'm uh, driving on the 1958 uh, version in uh, Monza. Uh, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there's a small problem with the game, with the recording. So you drive through the, your computers, mm -hmm. but now we are on the free track. So you see Mila, uh, Monza is one of the tracks uh, with very uh, long straights. So uh, a track where you need uh, engine, mm -hmm. especially when we discussed in 1960s, we have the different philosophy, light cars against the stronger but more powerful cars. And uh, Monza is uh, similar as Le Mans, for example, is a track which benefits the uh, car which may be a little bit less um, uh, which on the other side a little bit more heavier but uh, have more horsepowers 
and uh, we will come to this uh, later uh, in uh, in our uh, um, Mm -hmm. episode about uh, Monza. So here, uh, for you, for whom was interested, I'm uh, driving one of the very first uh, Ferraris from 1949, mm -hmm. which is very nicely uh, simulated in this game, uh, which is Test Drive uh, Ferraz, Ferrari Racing uh, Legends. Uh, relatively old uh, title for the PlayStation 3. The good thing is you can find these games quite cheap on eBay and if I'm correct it also is compatible to PlayStation 4. I don't know how it will be for Christmas when PlayStation 5 is coming out but uh, if you have a, a PlayStation 3 it's quite cheap uh, to find. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so indeed we see uh, quite a lot of uh, straight straights, mm. but also very sharp corners. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. That makes it difficult uh, to drive. And this was mm -hmm. one lap. Uh, yeah. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mostly uh, if we see Monza, if we are there, if you had the luck to be there in person or on um, TV, you see. It's the place where all the Tifosi meet, so people are dressed in red shirts uh, for Ferrari today, but in the past it was also the home uh, Grand Prix for Maserati and of course uh, Alfa Romeo is quite near Alfa Romeo uh, headquarters in uh, Milan, so in the same city, but also today uh, the Alfa Romeo team is based in Switzerland, so quite near. So it is uh, the traditional uh, home Grand Prix for the Italian teams. Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah, so beautiful ride. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Patrick. Yeah. So in terms of uh, the beginning, the beginning of this uh, of, of the circuit, yeah, it was uh, built in 19, 1922, as you probably saw on the first picture that showed you from the history, historical kind of outlook of um, of Monza. And uh, yeah, uh, it uh, traditionally hosted uh, probably the most important uh, races in Italy. Right. And uh, like I said, uh, in 1980, it was Imola, not Monza. And this is why we have overall, um, uh, yeah, basically 79 years instead of 80 years of Formula One. But uh, um, I just wanted to stress that, uh, you know, before Formula One started, uh, well, officially uh, in 1950, uh, there were many races there before then and uh, um, yeah it was also uh, indeed like you see on the slide also a scene of many accidents and uh, you can see the photo from 19, 1925 when you had uh, various uh, cars uh, waiting to go uh, and uh, yeah so it was a scene for uh, for, for racing uh, back in the day so it's it really predates uh, formula one by a significant number of years <laughs> so 27 years indeed so it's it was really a big 
um, a big event and uh, well, every event that they hosted was a big event and uh, it's one of the oldest uh, racing tracks that exist. Yeah, and luckily it's uh, still uh, in the agenda uh, of today's Formula One week because I mean, part what makes a Formula One is uh, interesting uh, even still today is that we have this kind of history. So we have today this mixture of very modern courses, including in uh, Asia, uh, countries with no longer Formula One history, but also we still have uh, the old historic uh, racetracks as for example, Monza, as mm -hmm. Spa, Francochamps. Sometimes we have the Grand Prix version of the Nürburgring. So we still have a lot, maybe not a lot, but we still have uh, various of these old classic tracks even today in the agenda. And I think this is what Formula One makes uh, interesting. Yeah, and um, we also have to probably mention here that uh, in terms of, um, in terms of uh, circuits and Formula One in particular, um, some of them go clockwise, you drive clockwise, some of them go anti-clockwise, for example, Budapest circle, this is an anti-clockwise circle, circuit, sorry, and um, yeah, so in terms of this new ones, I think maybe the, the one of the most exciting ones is, of course, Singapore, where you drive at night, you're supposed to drive at night. And we will definitely discuss discuss Singapore circuit and how it came into into being and what is the difference between Singapore circuit and the rest because you drive there in quite unusual conditions. So the building of it, what of it was amazingly uh, different from any other uh, track that we have in in the championship. Yeah, but going back to Monza, uh, yeah, I found it quite cool. Uh, uh, so this is this bridge that you see on the uh, in uh, on on this kind of schematic uh, pictures that we showed you at the, in the beginning, and uh, this is it. Uh, you know what it used to look like in 1925. <laughs> Have to say, probably yeah. quite uh, close to the usual road, uh, even though you can see the elevation on it. Uh, and the slope, but you know, it is, it almost looks like a city bridge, uh, right? Uh, if, if you didn't have the elevation effect, uh, then you would have thought that this could be just a regular road, a regular yeah. bridge. Yeah, and um, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, I forgot to say that uh, Monza uh, is a track which is near Milan, north, on, uh, north of Milan, in fact, uh, and uh, um, it is also quite a delight to visit. So if you are <laughs> after, after quarantines and after all this yeah. craziness sense, I know that many countries entered was kind of into second wave of COVID now. It's extremely difficult to travel. But if you are there, you can actually go and uh, you used to be able to, uh, to go for like a historical tour. I don't know if you can drive around uh, the track. I, I imagine maybe there are some events where you can do that. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly in uh, uh, Silverstone, for example, you, I mean, in the UK, you can go around. Uh, I'm not sure about Monza, but definitely you can, you used to be able to go for a tour and uh, see all the notable places there. So, um, yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, in terms of like we kind of almost uh, in inevitably when we talk about uh, uh, racing, we talk about accidents and uh, yeah, the 
uh, one of the largest and probably most significant accidents happened very early in uh, 1928. So that's basically six years uh, into running of the circuit. And uh, um, we had uh, the death not only of a driver, uh, Materassi, Emilio Materassi died, but also uh, there were 27 spe spectators who, who died. And uh, since that time, well, we kind of, uh, when we discussed uh, with Patrick the early days of Formula One, we explained that there was uh, basically no protection uh, on the driver and uh, uh, absolutely no protection of the uh, uh, of the audience, right, of the spectators. They practically just stood yeah. on the road <laughs> and that was the problem. So if... Uh, and you've seen the corners there, so if, uh, if for any reason you would not fit the corner properly, you could uh, basically fly out and uh, uh, as a result kill uh, innocent civilians in the sense that, that, uh, that, uh, that were there. So that's exactly kind of um, what was happening a lot, at least in the early years. Yeah. Yep, unfortunately. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I just wanted to, if you could go back here, yeah, I just wanted to explain that uh, th this was the, the reason why even back in the day we had, you probably are wondering why, <laughs> why they would change the track uh, back in the day before the beginning of Formula One, but that's exactly why, because there were many, many uh, of these uh, in incidents and accidents and uh, um, yeah, so mostly this, the, there was this, obviously, the high-speed loop uh, inside the circuit. Uh, it was uh, in uh, every time there was a major event or a, a major accident or even fatal accident, that would normally be the part of the circuit that would suffer. So they would somehow <laughs> prevent people from racing there or, uh, you know, enforce some rules to make sure that it's... Uh, um, you know, the, uh, it's raised under certain conditions. And, um, you know, again, uh, when they tried to race uh, this high-speed loop uh, in 1933, uh, we had yet another uh, fatality, you know, another chain of fatalities, right? So there was three drivers that, that, that died. And again, you know, we're talking about the Black Day of Monza, and again, we're talking about restricting the high-speed loop. Um, so, and that was kind of happening a lot uh, in the early days. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's, that's basically... Um, uh, so after 1933, we kind of going, uh, we kind of getting closer to Formula One days. And uh, again, there were some, uh, uh, so the majority of the changes that we, we saw introduced uh, were again uh, targeted at increasing safety. And, uh, but at the same time, we also had the two new bands be, being added. So that's for, for, the, uh, for the visual diversity of, this, uh, of, of the racing in this circuit. But at the same time, we also saw that uh, uh, there were kind of more sort of protect, protective uh, uh, structuring uh, introduced. 
And um, yeah, so we had uh, in 1950, we had our first official Grand Prix race uh, within the World Championship in Formula One. And, um, you know, it was kind of still a test, uh, a, um, a test circuit, uh, in a sense, a test uh, frame of a circuit by then. And uh, by 19, 1954, we had basically a 6.3 kilometer circuit, which was pretty stable and it... Uh, by then it was clear that you know there would be some maybe minor modifications it turned out that the modifications were actually not not that minor <laughs> uh, but effectively that's uh that's the core of the circuit that we see today yeah with uh, obviously some changes yeah um, yeah, so there were, there were various uh, innovations um, um, that are quite notable. For example, uh, I'm sure you noticed in uh, the first picture that we showed you that at one point there was a 10 kilometer ride. <laughs> it's not, uh, I don't think any circuit is as long now as 10, 10 kilometers now. It's basically, uh, well, it kind of ranged in recent years between uh, 5.6 and 5.7 ish uh, kilometers. I forgot uh, exactly how uh, how long it is now, but we will get to that, I'm sure. Um, but effectively, yeah, so that's the standard length now. And uh, the, the problem, of course, was uh, longevity and not too many drivers could uh, basically handle this and also the stability of cars. Uh, back in the day, uh, it was not fantastic. <laughs> this is why, um, you know, especially well, uh, when we talk about uh, some of the teams where you know this kind of was speed over stability. So probably Ferrari cars were quite stable no matter what. But if you if you take uh, other cars that were more light, uh, they were obviously less stable. And effectively, you know, you would have issues <laughs> making it to the finishing line. Um, and um, yeah, there were some modifications to make it faster. But like I said, it was kind of the whole history of Monza is a little bit like um, uh, fight between speed uh, and uh, kind of the visual diversity of the race and uh, safety right so when whenever it was made faster it would follow by by some tragic event and we would kind of go back so it's, it's a, um, a little bit like two steps forward one step back all the time so when they would make these modifications towards uh, making it more speedy um, you know they would have to backtrack and make it safer the next year or a few years later yeah yeah, it would be interesting uh, <clears throat> to discuss, uh, um, I mean, uh, Monza, uh, it's all, all about speed, uh, similar as we see uh, with the Italian race cars, which have the focus on the engine. It's, speed is uh, maybe a little bit related to Italian culture, while the, in opposite, uh, most British team uh, had a focus on uh, on the weight, especially Lotus, as we may discuss in the next uh, episode. 
as this maybe is a little bit more to the more problematic uh, British uh, approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also, yeah, I think there is, uh, so um, one thing that I forgot to say is the uh, um, the fact that on the, this main, main straight that, that Patrick just showed, nicely showed us in the video, you could actually run cars in parallel, which makes it like, this is what I mean, it's uh, visually, it's very cool, because um, uh, we will, uh, I mean, we haven't, we, we didn't get to that time period in the series yet, but uh, if you remember, especially kind of late 1990s and uh, two early 2000s, um, the cars were made quite wide at, at one point, and it was uh, very difficult to bypass uh, uh, someone, so like bypass a competitor. So currently we have, we kind of slightly went back, the FIA slightly went back on the, in the regulations on the sizing of the cars, just uh, exactly to, to encourage this sort of overtaking and running in parallel. Uh, but, um, you know, in, in Monza, kind of this uh, sort of for this visual diversity and visual attractiveness of the race, uh, it was uh, made uh, to, you know, so that you can actually fit uh, cars in parallel on the um, on this main, main straight portion of the of the circuit. So that makes it quite cool. I actually remember when I was in the university, I saw uh, it was, I think, an article in Autosport magazine or something like this, and it was a photo of a, uh, a photo of a lady that was basically reading a book. <laughs> in sort of, there was a, a, a photo of um, Formula One race. Uh, in Monza, and uh, there was a photo of uh, a woman who was reading a book at the time, and uh, it's amazing because you could see all the audience kind of being really submerged in what was going on at the race, and she was kind of completely <laughs> detached and <laughs> just uh, not paying attention to the to what was going on. So I guess uh, the idea of uh, Monza constructors and engineers uh, was to uh, to make sure that no one is uh, more mesmerized by a book <laughs> than by the race the race and um, so that's quite characteristic of this of this track yeah yeah and uh, Italy has a long uh, tradition uh, with creating such uh, shows I mean you just have to go to Rome and uh, visit the Colosseum where also I mean I'm sure if the show was on with the gladiators uh, nobody would have been detached or reading something well, yeah, I mean, uh, it was quite a quite a notable photo, and I think uh, when I saw it on social media and people were commenting on it, saying it must have been quite some book, because you can't really see what book it is. <laughs> and, yeah, so anyways, um, yeah. so normally, yeah, it's quite, uh, it, it, it is, it is very um, exciting. Uh, if you are much. following um, our episode uh, since the beginning, since the 1950s, uh, you remember that in the beginning, uh, Indianapolis 500 was part of the um, World Championship, even if the European teams never traveled to the US and the US teams never traveled uh, to um, <laughs> Europe, at least not for the Formula One Championship. Uh, but we had Indianapolis, the Oval and um, uh, so not surprisingly that uh, the U.S. Uh, manufacturers tried to sell it their, their vision of racing also to, the, to good old Europe. 
And um, that's maybe the reason why 54 uh, Monza, they constructed also a high-speed oval. And um, this is a point we will come a little bit later today. Mm -hmm. Right, so, <laughs> yeah. So like I said uh, before, it was basically a home to many races, including mm -hmm. motorcyc motorcycle racing. So it was not just the cars. And um, yeah, we've, we have a whole episode on Alberto Ascari, who basically died uh, here. Yeah, we can say that. And um, so he didn't die during the, um, uh, the Grand, you know, the Grand Prix, but in training, in a sense, he was not supposed to be in the car that day, but still decided to drive. And uh, you, you can basically refer to the relevant episode in the series. Uh, so we we'll discussed this, uh, um, this in detail, but now we have, uh, as a result, uh, Variante Ascari. And I think Patrick there also explained that it uh, didn't exist, uh, even though, you know, we have uh, uh, we call it Variante Ascari because it was around that part of the circuit where, you know, the accident happened. Uh, but effectively, we'll have a, you know, smoother, right, a smoother part now uh, where this, uh, uh, yeah, this part of the circle, circuit was basically uh, changed as a result of, uh, well, as a result of several fatalities, in fact, but yeah, that was one of the... Probably most notable um, figures that that uh, lost his life in uh, in the circuit, and yeah, now we have this Varianta Ascari, which you can see uh, on this these schematic maps that we showed you uh, at the beginning. So it's like this little <laughs> curved thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's it's quite sharp, nevertheless, right? So in the simulation yes, that you just showed, Patrick, I mean, it's, uh, I was surprised. I thought it was going to be smoother. But in fact, yeah, because you have kind of like almost uh, three curvatures there instead of uh, having like a, a straight line. Then, you know. Yeah, and you're coming with a lot of speed uh, towards uh, yeah, Ascari. Yeah, so I think, uh, in fact, every turn is probably uh, <laughs> like a lawsuit waiting to happen because, <laughs> you know, if you, are, if you are driving at a very high speed, it's very easy to make a mistake, yeah, especially yep. if you are racing against other people. Yeah, um, yeah so, um, and as you can see, after basically those modifications, so the next, next modification was uh, 1979. And that was mainly because the speed of the cars increased. Uh, so, um, you know, the, we, we had quite a few uh, important innovations uh, in the 70s. So, so the cars became a lot quicker uh, as a result, of course, of aerodynamic revolution in Formula One. And also, um, you know, cars became lighter and uh, obviously less reliable. And it was mainly the desire to separate, to further separate the audience from the track um, and also to make it a little bit more, uh, yeah, to, inc to increase the safety for the drivers, to make it uh, more safe for them as well. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's good that they not only uh, built it uh, or rebuilt it after an accident uh, on the same track, but also uh, studied the development of the cars and came to the conclusion they have to 
make changes on the tracks, even if there wasn't directly an accident. And of course, you learn also from accident on the other racetracks. Yeah, yeah, we discussed uh, in this series, yeah. for example, so the large Le Mans uh, uh, accidents and, you know, other things that happened. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, so you, uh, in, in the previous uh, slide, you saw the 2016 uh, track, uh, what it looked like in 2016, but um, basically, um, yeah, so like, uh, uh, like Patrick said, uh, you know, f f we had uh, some tragic events with uh, Ayrton Senna and um, uh, Roland Rasenberger in 1994, but that was at, at the Imola circuit. But nevertheless, uh, you know, the conclusions were the, the, it was consequently uh, sort of uh, taken seriously by Monza. And uh, again, you know, we have now this, uh, you know, you know, squeezed curves in a sense. So it doesn't mean that it became less uh, um, less dangerous, but at least it's a little bit more controlled. And now we have uh, this 5.7 kilometer uh, circuit. And then, uh, yeah, so we also have the, uh, like further in we had further innovations uh, reno uh, renovations in 2007 um, uh, and uh, uh, then in uh, 2016 there was a, some plant work uh, that didn't happen but i believe uh, it eventually uh, ev eventually happened in 2017 um, and uh, yeah um, uh, again, it was all about kind of bypassing the, the dangerous parts and going yeah. into safer parts um, of the circuit. So like I said, it's a little bit, as you can see, it's a little bit, uh, they change it towards kind of allowing for higher speed, more interesting racing, and then they kind of backtrack to make it safer. So that's, you know, this... Uh, um, uh, a constant uh, struggle between these two goals. Exactly. It's very tricky because uh, as an organizer, you want to keep, uh, let's say, the spirit of the racetrack. So you want uh, to keep Monza as a high speed track because this is what uh, the specters, uh, your uh, audience is awaiting from you. And also a lot of the drivers, uh, they want uh, to have do they love drive on a, a classic uh, racetrack? So, but nevertheless, uh, we want to protect the drivers and the spectators. So it's quite tricky uh, to include such changes. Yeah, I just also want to explain to people. Uh, so I, I think uh, the majority of you guys who are watching this series probably you watched uh, the you watched the race uh, um, uh, on TV. <laughs> it's a very different experience from watching it live because when you watch it live normally you just see a small section of yes. uh, well relatively small section of the track unless you have like a VIP seat somewhere <laughs> but even then like it's not really you you only see a portion of the track yes. of the of the circuit and uh, you um, therefore uh, as an organizer you want to make sure that it is entertaining for the, the spectators because um, they they have a very limited uh, you know a, a limited view so it always should be ex you know it should always be exciting because mm -hmm. this is a high speed race uh, 
it's uh, sometimes very difficult to make out which car it is and all that. And uh, naturally, you know, you do not have like life analytics that you see on TV. And um, therefore, especially, you know, back in the day when we didn't have, like you couldn't actually take your smartphone with you and maybe have some uh, pa parallel uh, understanding of what is going on by watching uh, something on your smartphone some analytics or some, um, you know, some coverage on your smartphone at the same time uh, as you are experiencing a life event, you know, when you were just experiencing the life event, it was very important to have this uh, sort of, uh, um, you know, visual attractiveness of uh, the race uh, almost at each point, right? So that's, that's important. And um, yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a very hard task uh, for, for the um, for the engineers who work on circuits. Exactly. Today, um, uh, you can have your practically your, uh, if you're watching TV, you have your smartphone, you use it as a second uh, screen because you can see the race. And uh, for example, with the Formula One app, uh, you can get all uh, the technical information. Uh, you get in information of what the drivers are communicating with the team. Mm -hmm. uh, how their tires are, whatever. So we get a lot of technical information if you want to. Yeah. Of course, now you get this also when you are um, at a racetrack via your smartphone. But uh, even 10 years ago, this wasn't uh, existing. Yeah, exactly. So I, my first time at the racetrack was, I think, at Monaco. And uh, it's uh, probably... You know, it was uh, one of the most exciting, I, I, well, I had a boyfriend at the time who took me to the race, um, so he thought that would be a, like a cool gift. And I just thought that was probably the most boring experience of my life because I didn't realize that you just see uh, sort of a small portion of what is going on. But then, uh, you know, I kind of got into it, so I understand the point of being there rather than kind of watching uh, watching TV. And then so I went to quite a few of these events and then I went to, to Silverstone afterwards and to Nürburgring and uh, to, to, to other tracks uh, to, to see it live. But, you know, um, I'm just saying like if you if you always watched it on TV, it's very different experience and maybe the first time around you would think that <laughs> that was probably not a very good. <laughs> it's a little bit like live con concert, right? Lots of people drinking beer around you, and it's not very. It's very loud, and <laughs> you you can't see much. So uh, compared to probably the TV experience that most people are used to. Exactly, so the experience is completely different. I mean, uh, it's less uh, seeing, but therefore you have much more uh, experience via your ears because the sound is completely different. This compared to what you're getting from the TV. And uh, also, uh, if you're there in summer, you are like uh, two, three hours uh, in the sun, at least if you are in Monza. And of course, uh, you are able uh, to smell the cars, the oil, the tires. Uh, so it's a complete different uh, experience uh, addressing other of your five senses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, then we are going back to numbers. Yes, yeah, so so we promised to show you the like which team we we made an assumption that Ferrari was the most successful team in this uh, yeah. uh, in the circuit, and indeed uh, you can see that Ferrari reads by a 
by by far. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say like twice as much in the wins and second and third places or podium positions compared to other teams. And in fact, uh, more than more than twice compared to the second place, which is McLaren. So effectively, we have the following. I mean, um, I think uh, what we're looking at uh, right now is uh, the uh, the Italian GP that actually includes Imola. And uh, uh, so if we just look at Italian GP, that, that kind of is uh, 79 years at uh, Monza and one year at Imola. We have, uh, you know, Ferrari basically achieving 70 podiums and uh, the next best position is McLaren with uh, 27 podiums and uh, yeah, Ferrari won 20 races uh, on this uh, circuit. Uh, so absolute lead uh, in that sense uh, was uh, 27 times it was second and uh, uh, 23 times it was third in Italian Grand Prix. And then McLaren, you know, McLaren was 10 wins and 10, uh, 10 second places and seven third places. So 27 podiums overall. And, um, you know, I was um, kind of, yeah, I was, uh, I was thinking that Mercedes will be uh, the third, but then, uh, and I have to, yeah, make a footnote here that Mercedes includes uh, Mercedes-Benz, uh, that was the initial. Um, uh, in, in, so it's kind of three teams together, right? All being called Mercedes. So we had Mercedes-Benz, we had Braun, Braun Mercedes, and then we now have Mercedes. So uh, so that's kind of a cumulative of all three yeah. that you can see in there. So it's not technically the same team. So in that sense, it's not kind of... So uh, they kind of would be the third um, team according to wins and the third team according to second places. But overall, uh, as you can see, because there are nine wins for Williams, oh sorry, nine third places for Williams, third positions for Williams, Williams actually overall uh, got 19 Italian Grand Prix podiums. Uh, so, but that situation is quite different. So, if, Patrick, if you go to the next uh, uh, slide. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. So something I nevertheless uh, like to add is um, yeah, yeah, sorry. The, numbers, the numbers are not um, um, quite independent. I mean, Ferrari has the most wins, but I think it's also the team uh, which has the most uh, starts. Yes, uh, yes, exactly. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, we have to make a, f make a footnote that um, of course, uh, Ferrari is uh, the only, not, not just the most starts, it is the, the only, only team that raced from 1950 to now. Um, so McLaren kind of also since it's, um, uh, since the beginning of the team kind of it races, right? But uh, yeah, that's the only team that actually consistently races every year there. And also, of course, for Ferrari, this is a home circuit in a sense, exactly. because that's yeah. where they do most of the training. Uh, but I mean, this is a, a, an interesting question. So I think uh, maybe the next circuit that we could do will be uh, Silverstone and we can see yes, whether British teams <laughs> do just as well. I mean, that's a good question to ask, right? Yeah. Um, but I mean, be, yeah. I, I just wanted to say that I was, uh, um, I, I mean, I was a little bit surprised to see Williams to kind of gain the overall 
third place according to this podium positions in Italian Grand Prix. Uh, on the one hand, because because of the kind of because of Williams' performance recently, but uh, <laughs> yeah, indeed, if you remember the history, then it makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. it was a very strong team for many years. Yeah, and my second uh, point would be that there again the, these numbers are not uh, independent, uh, as we saw. Um, the race flag monster is uh, very traditional, very old, uh, so it's older than um, the Ferrari team, and so uh, we may assume that Enzo Ferrari, when he first thought about racing, he thought about uh, monster, uh, so a track about speed, and due to this. Uh, he had developed uh, the vision that uh, uh, winning means uh, the strongest uh, engine and due to this he developed uh, cars which work perfectly on uh, Monza. Yeah, and another thing to note is that, uh, you know, look at Lotus teams with 10 wins and uh, this is kind of the old Lotus team we're talking about. Yeah. So it's uh, the team that practically did not exist for many years and yet is still there in the fourth place, uh, which is quite... Yeah, which is quite uh, quite fascinating if you think about it. Yeah, I just wanted to also show you just, uh, just the Monza results and there this, the standings are a, a little bit more interesting for the third place because here we have that Mercedes and um, so these are kind of these are uh, the circle circled uh, positions is where several teams lost uh, so it was basically <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, Nelson Piquet uh, who was racing for Braham at the time who, win, who won the race and uh, yeah yeah so when we get we get to that later so yeah if you could go back we'll, we'll so I just wanted to say that was uh, Piquet's car, uh, Piquet's race uh, in 1980 in Imola that kind of we took out from the previous uh, um, table. And what happened here is that look at Mercedes and Williams, all of a sudden they have equal number of podiums. So they both have 17 podiums in total. And of course, um, you know, the, the, the standings of Ferrari and McLaren didn't change and similar for Lotus is just, uh, you know, we have an interesting tie in the third place and considering that Mercedes currently is doing a lot better than Williams, uh, I'm guessing next year they will probably surpass the, you know, surpass Williams. <laughs> Yeah, it's highly predictable. Yeah, I think uh, that uh, that is something that we can expect. Um, and uh, um, but overall, uh, as you can see, it's very um, so for the seventy-nine years of um, uh, running in you know running the uh, the Italian Grand Prix in Monza. Uh, Ferrari is definitely the <laughs> the, le the lead, uh, yeah. and uh, I think it's pretty much unbeatable by now because you know you need uh, unless Ferrari completely stops participating. But even then, you know, like look at Lotus <laughs> with their with their ten podiums is still there despite the fact that you know it was kind of in and out and uh, uh, yeah. Uh, not very consistently participating and still is is still there in in the fourth place. Yeah. So yeah, my prediction like next year probably Williams will go to the fourth place uh, in overall standing, considering that Mercedes. But maybe you know maybe we will see Williams doing well. I mean I would personally like to see that. <laughs> yeah. 
would be uh, interesting. Uh, I think everybody would like to see Williams uh, again more competitive. I mean, such a traditional team. Uh, nevertheless, uh, my prediction would speak a little bit against this wish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, that's in terms of constructors. So yeah, in that sense, uh, we can say you know Ferrari. Uh, Ferrari first, uh, McLaren second, and then Mercedes and Williams in the third spots according to overall number of podiums. But of course, Mercedes is in the third place according to the number of wins. Yeah. 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 Um, with that, we go to uh, uh, drivers. And uh, I kind of uh, want to keep an intrigue a little bit and start with the people who won just one. <laughs> <laughs> one uh, uh, Grand Prix there, so quite a quite a quite a large list of people, as you can see. Uh, you know, from uh, sort of most of these folks are from 1950s and uh, to 1970s, right? And and uh, yeah, uh, you know, some of the current drivers as well, and uh, some of the names that we probably remember from the hist history of uh, Formula One. So that's uh, that's the list of people who won uh, only one time, but nevertheless, very notably, <laughs> yes, we want to mention. Uh, yes, uh, Monza is one of the highlights of the of the season. So even if winning it once uh, is an achievement. Yes, of course, of course. But I mean, that's that's uh, sort of one win. Uh, let's go to people who won it twice. Yeah, I have to say, so yeah, there is a start against Nelson Piquet because Nelson Piquet did win three Italian Grand Prix, but he's in on this list because uh, we have to subtract one uh, win because it was at Imola rather than at Monza. So just uh, kind of... Uh, keep that in mind. And this is uh, the two pictures, actually, uh, these are both Nelson Piquet, except, <laughs> except uh, one picture is kind of when he's in the older age, obviously, and the other one is from 1980, <laughs> that, that year when it was uh, racing the Mola. Uh, Alberto Ascari, whom, about whom we talked uh, today already, and uh, who actually tragically died in this circuit. Ayrton Senna, of course, uh, we haven't, we didn't get to him yet, but uh, I can't yeah. wait. Uh, so that would probably will be two episodes in a row, <laughs> considering the um, the figure and uh, you know he's uh, he you know he's probably one of the most uh, still one of the most iconic uh, figures in the sport to date. Yeah, Claire Regazzoni, again, uh, also uh, a driver who is often forgotten, and uh, I think we should maybe discuss him separately. Damon yeah, luckily, Hill. Uh, luckily, you can see him in the movie Rush together yeah. with Greg Hunt and Nicky Lauda. Yes, exactly, exactly. So that's uh, um, uh, Damon Hill. Of course, we didn't get to him. We got through two hills so far, <laughs> over the two hills so far, <laughs> which is Phil Hill and Graham Hill. So Graham Hill is his dad, of course, and uh, Damon Hill, uh, yeah, was two wins there. Fernando Alonso uh, and uh, Patrick was telling us that Fernando Alonso still wants to get to the the triple crown <laughs> but i mean he i mean the achievement is there he's a twice a champion in uh, in uh, twice winner sorry in this uh, 
uh, in, in this uh, circuit. Uh, Montoya, of course, another cool figure, uh, you know, Jackie Stewart, so whom, about whom we just started talking last time when we discussed the 1965 season. Uh, John Surtees, uh, yeah, another kind of undervalued driver that we mentioned already in our episode. Uh, well, Nicky I mean, he uh, Formula One champion and also motorcycle champion. Champion, yeah. He was very introvertive, and uh, that's why maybe he's a little bit less remembered um, than other figures from that time. Yeah, but I mean, like we when we discussed 1964 season, and we said that until you know Mexican Grand Prix, no one knew who was going to win, and then it was such a yeah. <laughs> such a surprise in a sense yeah. because like uh, yeah, I mean he had chances to win, but no, I don't think anybody expected uh, between uh, Clark and Graham Hill and and John Surtees. Yeah. So it will be John Surtees, but it was kind of cool because Clark already had one win and uh, uh, Graham Hill had one win by 1964, and then it was good to see someone else, right, uh, John Sertis to win in 1964. Nicky Lauder, I mean, what a guy. I mean, this is like a whole, <laughs> whole separate universe that we are going to talk about. And Phil Hill, of course, uh, who uh, was a driver for Ferrari for many years. And, uh, you know, he obviously had a lot of experience on the track. And so, yeah. as you can see, so this is the list of uh, twice, <laughs> twice winners. Yeah. Uh, With with a footnote yeah. that Nelson Piquet actually won three Italian Grand Prix, but just two at Monza. So, yeah. And now the group gets uh, smaller when we speak about the three-time winners. Yeah, so these are the three-time winners. And again, what a list. Um, <laughs> uh, of course, uh, I mean, I'm going to maybe start not very chronologically, but uh, yeah, I will try to be a little bit chronological. So that's, of course, uh, Fangio, right? Uh, Stirling yeah. Moss, um, and then Ronnie Peterson. Yeah, I was a little bit, you know, when I found, uh, so when I, I saw the name of Ronnie Peterson in the, in the calculations, I was like, oh, wow, like I, you know, in a sense, completely forgot about him, which is, which is horrible because uh, he was such a cool talent and, you know, um, you know, we really should spend some time. We don't have many people from Sweden <laughs> in Formula One, and certainly, I mean, he's yeah. he's such an amazing talent. Um, uh, Rubens, uh, Rubens Barrichello, um, very experienced guy. Uh, Alan Prost, uh, of course, and uh, uh, more recently, Sebastian Vettel. Uh, you know, was also very successful on this circuit. So these yeah, are but... all people who were crowned uh, three times on the circuit. I think surprisingly to find uh, Rubens uh, Barrichello because uh, mostly he was the uh, numbers, uh, the second driver in the teams. Yeah, so that's right. But because he had three times winning here. Yeah, I think uh, in his case, it's more experience and uh, the duration. Uh, like at one point, I think he was uh, the, the most experienced driver in the sport. And uh, for that kind of was for many years. I mean, he's a little bit of one of those, again, under, underrated people, I think, in yes. Formula One, where he was around for ages. And this is why <laughs> I think he achieved a lot. But like people somehow remember, you know, so some uh, some of the other drivers who maybe won once, but you know Rubens is uh, this uh, you know <laughs> slowly but surely. <laughs> well, not yeah. so slowly, but <laughs> rather surely. Yeah, and he was very short before uh, before winning a championship. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. They lost okay. against um, Alonso in the very last moment. Yes, yes. And, uh, but I mean, he is uh, like really also a really cool driver. And yeah. uh, I hope uh, when we get to obviously later years of Formula One, he started, uh, he, he was around for a very, very long time. And uh, this is uh, also a factor that you have to consider in this sport because, you know, it's not, you don't have a very long life in, in sport, at least. Uh, I mean, previously, you just uh, wouldn't have a very long life period because it was such a, uh, such a, uh, uh, yeah, such a dangerous sport in, uh, you know, in Formula One. Uh, but currently, yeah, it's your life as a Formula One driver is probably not very long. And, uh, yeah. you know, for him, it was a, yeah, he had a long career. Yes, and he finished uh, with uh, Williams. And at that time, Williams was uh, still relatively competitive. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, we don't have, uh, as, a, uh, as a spoiler, we do not have any four-time winners, but we have two people who were five-time winners and there we go Michael Schumacher and Lewis Hamilton and of course uh, because uh, Mikhail is not racing anymore uh, for obvious reasons um, Lewis Hamilton will probably surpass I think uh, Mikhail maybe if, yes, uh, if not people. next year then um, you know, it's hard to tell when exactly, but yeah, I think considering that Lewis Hamilton definitely is not, unless something extraordinary happens, of course. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I so, mean, theoretically, uh, the only reason why he would not uh, win would be a technical problem next year or that he would not start because theoretically, yeah, I mean, uh, anyone can win, let's just say. <laughs> yeah, let's say. <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah, but, but let's say, uh, yeah Mercedes can have a uh, poor yes, car next Mercedes year. And, yeah, anything can happen while, like, you know, it could not happen in Monza for him. But, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, currently these guys are tight. And, um, you know, at this point I thought, okay, well, remember how we said before to you guys, and I'm sure, I don't know whether you are watching this series or you just tuned in for this episode, but we were talking about um, how, you know, you drive in uh, dry conditions versus wet conditions. So I thought, okay, well, <laughs> I got to find out which one, is which one of these guys is better. And I thought, I'm going to just look at who raced the, uh, and one in uh, wet conditions, because what happens in wet conditions compared to dry conditions is the following. So when you have the wet conditions, um, it's more about the driving ability than about the, the car performance, because if you are in superior car and the conditions are dry, you practically, as, an, as a driver in an inferior car, you practically have, well, no chance, <laughs> well, very low chance, let's just say, to bypass someone in the superior car. But when, think, when the weather is wet, uh, it is quite an interesting, it, it becomes very interesting because everyone slows down and all of a sudden you get um, the competition of expertise, driving expertise rather than, oh, well, you know, it's a combination of course of analytics and expertise, but um, driving expertise become very, very important. And um, to my <laughs> astonishment, when I looked at the weather conditions in, um, in my database, I actually discovered there were only four times <laughs> when 
<laughs> it was wet conditions in Monza, which is going to be quite different. I mean, I'm sure when we look at, for example, Spa um, or some other races, you know, Silverstone, I guess, yeah, we will see quite a lot of uh, races in the rain and then we could do, so uh, we could do some comparisons. So I can't really tell you who is better, Michael Schumacher or, or Lewis Hamilton, because both of them won in dry conditions only. But here is the list of folks who won in the rain. Well, either in the rain or in wet conditions. I'm not yeah. quite sure whether the rain was actually <laughs> present at the time when they won, but definitely they were uh, racing in wet conditions. So either it was rain or it was just wet track when they were racing. And that's uh, Sterling Moss in 1956. Uh, Ronnie Peterson, again, I mean, Ronnie Peterson, this is the second time his name comes up in this episode, like I said, very, you know, like really fantastic driver and uh, very often forgotten. Uh, in 1976, Alan Prost in 1981 and uh, Sebastian Vettel in 2008. This is kind of the most recent wet <laughs> um, conditions win. Um, so, um, so probably these folks are, you know, like when we talk about the three-time winners, uh, they're probably slightly cooler than the rest <laughs> because, uh, because yeah, they raced, uh, they won in uh, wet conditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But again, the resolution, the sort of the the resolution of uh, the. Um, you know, who is better, Michael Schumacher or, or, or Lewis Hamilton, I cannot tell you because, you know, unfortunately, uh, none of them raced in, in, in the wet conditions in, in Monza. I, I'm, uh, I'm a little uncertain. In 2008, if Hamilton was already in Formula One, and yes, uh, he was, Michael he Schumacher was still there. Uh, he was. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I thought there was, uh, uh, so the originally when Lewis started in the sport, he raced for McLaren and McLaren mm -hmm. at the time did a little bit better than Ferrari. Um, so yeah, I mean, there were a number of reasons why I think just, you know, Ferrari didn't have a very good car for a few seasons then. And uh, so we can't really compare, uh, you know, if they had like relatively similar uh, yeah. positions, then yes, I mean, I'm just uh, in general, you know, would have been an interesting thing. So I was hoping to run like some regression with like where it's uh, wet condition versus like dry condition and then uh, show you maybe the, the diversity, but like it wasn't much heterogeneity in this, uh, in this particular data set because like I said, over 79 years, we only had four races in, in the wet conditions. Yeah, so in, in, I think in Spa it will be easier. Yeah, I mean, in other, definitely on other tracks, uh, we will have some interesting, um, I'm sure, results. Yeah. It, uh, <clears throat> is this the let's go back uh, again uh, in time to 1957, 1958? Uh, I think a chapter which most of the people don't remember or don't know uh, about it. Uh, as we discussed uh, earlier, in the 1950s, we had the uh, agenda with uh, the races in Europe and uh, one uh, traditional one race was the Indianapolis 500, which had been officially on the paper a part of the Formula One World Championship. 
but it was uh, the Indianapolis um, since then was uh, done with different cars based on uh, different uh, regulations. And due to this, uh, the uh, European teams not uh, traveled to Indianapolis or uh, in, the, in the example of Ferrari, they prepared one car, they adapted it, but um, it wasn't really a 100% approach to win it because they did it with a small uh, approach and maybe they wanted to show the car, but they not traveled there with the aim to really win uh, the race. Uh, later, beginning of the 1960s, uh, Indianapolis 500 uh, fell out of the uh, agenda, so it wasn't a part of the Formula One championship anymore. Uh, but uh, there had been other races, uh, mostly in Watkins Glen in California. So, uh, and these Formula One races uh, had been based on the standard Formula One. Uh, regulations and uh, this is um, up to today we have uh, Grand Prix sometimes uh, even two sometimes um, none uh, but these races in the US are now based on the same regulations as uh, the ones in Europe for example and mostly all uh, European teams uh, traveling to the US uh, in some years we saw that they didn't uh, because uh, the US um, uh, Grand Prix, similar as the Mexican Grand Prix, had been quite at the end. So some teams, uh, if they hadn't had any chance anymore to win the championship, which could be the constructors or the drivers championship, decided to focus their limited budgets on the um, development of the next year's cars and not invested into uh, the travels. Um, so. Uh, in the 1950s, it was uh, still a little bit a competition, uh, which would be the, the more uh, successful concept. Uh, as we saw, Formula One later uh, went to the US, uh, but also earlier uh, the US uh, tried to sell their racing philosophy to Europe. And uh, in 1957, they agreed with the organizers of the uh, Monza Grand Prix and uh, Monza, they built this oval, as we already saw uh, in the beginning. And we had in the year 57 and 58, the so-called race of the two worlds. So here really uh, competed the US cars with, based on US regulations with European cars. Uh, it wasn't completely uh, that they are competing by, because the, this race was based on the uh, US regulations, so the Italian uh, and the European teams which participated here, they had to participate on the US regulations. Uh, we will see uh, Ferrari, they um, created one, two cars based on these regulations. Um, but nevertheless, uh, the races had been dominated by the US uh, teams because it was had been US regulations and it had been based on an oval. So it was like home territory, only that it was in Italy and not somewhere um, in the States. Uh, also, uh, the distance had been similar to the 500 miles. It had been 800 kilometer, so the same as Indianapolis. Only difference, it was not uh, one race, but it has been uh, three different uh, races. So there had been uh, breaks in between that engineered uh, could work on the cars drivers could uh, rest and uh, the winner was the one which had the highest um, 
average speed uh, from the three stints. Uh, Gunnar, you mentioned uh, um, the, the, um, the direction in opposite to the normal Formula One uh, Grand Prix in uh, Mansa. It uh, was been here uh, used in an anti-clockwise uh, direction. So it is quite interesting that they drove the other way around. Mm -hmm. Here on the right, you see the nice uh, trophy which you got in these uh, two years. It was only two years because um, it was not that well accepted by the audience and after only two years they stopped uh, this attempt to make IndyCar racing uh, more well-known, more famous in Europe. Uh, it wasn't the uh, last attempt, uh, at least there was one more I remember uh, shortly after the German reunification. Um, they built an oval in the former eastern part of Germany. To be honest, I do not remember where exactly. Uh, the race uh, had a quite a tragic accident where um, Alex Sanadi had, uh, had an accident and due to this uh, lost his uh, two legs. So the, and maybe also because of this uh, tragic happening, they never repeated uh, this event in eastern Germany. We had uh, two winners, 1957, Jimmy Bryan, and the year later, Jim Redman. Unfortunately, I couldn't find uh, any uh, photos uh, which had been in the public domain or uh, on other pages. So, sorry, just the names, not photos, but you can uh, Google and maybe find them. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, there was a quite uh, cool mix of cars. Uh, so uh, just some to present you. Uh, quite on the left, you see the 1957 Jaguar uh, D-Type. And in the middle, uh, as we saw it often, uh, Ghana U and the Maserati 240F. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this, uh, uh, this is they tried uh, to participate in uh, 57. Uh, later, uh, we will see they uh, updated the car, especially for this event. And on the right, you see the 1957 Kusma Offenhausers. Uh, this was the car who really won the event. So you see a typical Indy car. Then in uh, 1958, we had this uh, very cool uh, Lister Jaguar with this uh, special material, which is really mirroring. Looks uh, really cool. I would assume I just know it from the photo. Uh, in the middle, the 1958 Maserati 420M, driven by uh, Sterling Moss. A special development uh, for this event, but unfortunately also not that successful. Um, same as true as the car on the right. This is the 57 Ferrari 326 Mi, driven by Phil Hill. A special construction just for this one event. Same as Ferrari did uh, in the year after, they developed the 412 MI driven by Luigi Musso. Again, car especially for this one-time event and unfortunately here also not very successful. In opposite uh, to the car on the right, this is the Watson Offenhauser Sync Leader Card Monster Special. So a car uh, the team did for this event but uh, more or less uh, still a uh, classic uh, IndyCar uh, construction. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, I think this is one of the forgotten uh, but interesting uh, chapters of the Monza Grand Prix, a part of this very long tradition the track has. And uh, another point, we saw the pure numbers. And uh, for the ones uh, you remember our episode about 1960, you may remember that that particular year we had the British team emerging with the rear engine cars. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ferrari, as Enzo was a little bit stubborn on that topic, continued with the front engine, uh, which had been uh, dif more difficult to drive, but on the other hand, had still the advantage of having much more horsepower than the British teams. So uh, what did the organizers of the Monza Grand Prix? They used uh, the very long track, including uh, the uh, oval. And uh, a track very, um, not, not, not unsafe, but uh, risky, especially for the light British teams, which, uh, which, which saw the, that they wouldn't have any chance. And as they have been uh, constructed in a quite light way, also saw that this is a safety issue. So uh, the Grand Prix of Italy was boycotted by the British teams and practically uh, Ferrari and some private teams uh, drove uh, alone on the track and uh, if you consider the statistics so this was practically uh, a victory without opponents for Ferrari that year. So you see the on the right the car and we have uh, the first three uh, places. Uh, first uh, Phil Hill, Richie Ginter and uh, William Merez all driving the Ferrari and uh, a gift uh, for Ferrari, which was, uh, I think, the only victory in that particular year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, folks, I think that's all we have for today. Yeah, so I think, um, um, yeah, to kind of be fair to the comment that Patrick uh, made about the uh, sort of this, the, the wins and, uh, and everything, I can definitely calculate the corrected for the number of starts as well, uh, just, to, just to make sure that uh, we have a <laughs> complete picture. Uh, so that's definitely what I can do, potentially adding a comment uh, underneath. Maybe even next time when we talk about some other track, we can come back or maybe make a shorter video with uh, just tables uh, corrected for um, the number of starts. Yeah, but I mean, at the end, it doesn't really change. Um, yeah, for this particular for this particular track, it will not change the situation. Maybe it will change uh, a little something for drivers a little bit. Um, I think, but um, yeah, so we can we can check. I can check that. Yeah, so we can maybe have a short sort of uh, addition to this video later, and uh, just just to show you the the yeah the percentage of wins rather than uh, like the the absolute numbers. But yeah, yeah. I mean, this is uh, our take on Monza, and as we as we said before, Ferrari is definitely in the lead. I, I doubt that that will change after we correct for the number of starts. So definitely the most successful uh, constructor in Monza circuit. And that was the question that we had, I believe in uh, the previous episodes. As usual, we are on all possible podcast platforms apart from YouTube. Of course, uh, 
uh, if you are listening to this as a podcast, uh, we highly recommend you go to YouTube because we also show some pictures. <laughs> and uh, today we showed the video, which is great. So thank you, Patrick, for this. That was awesome. And yeah, so uh, thank you all for watching. And if you have any comments, uh, uh, if you uh, agree or disagree with us, do let us know. Yep. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Thanks a lot. You. See you bye next bye. time. Bye.